Amen. Good morning. Good morning. morning. How are we doing today? It is an awesome delight to be here. Happy anniversary, Epiphany. Amen. Even as I was watching the the video, taking a trip down memory lane, uh, Psalms 36, verse number 5, came to mind where it says uh, that your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens and that your faithfulness extends to the clouds. And, and even as I, if I could describe the last year in two words, it would be God's faithfulness. Um, you know, we set out to plant a church and, you know, and there's some church planters in the room. Um, we set out to plant a church and honestly, man, we have plans and we have ideas and we have, uh, you know, all of these visions and dreams. And at the end of the day, the Lord just comes and he scraps it and says, this is what you're doing. And uh, well, what you see really playing out is Matthew 16. I will build my church is what Jesus said. And, and honestly, it's been really great to be able to just sit down and just watch. Like I have a front row seat to watch to watching Jesus build this church. And, and so I even you guys being in this room today is is an extension of God's grace and God's faithfulness. So thank you guys for coming. Let me take this quick opportunity to say welcome to our first time visitors. If you're here for the first time, we are grateful that you are here. We are glad that you're here. You being here brings us joy. And if you don't have to rush out, we love to talk to you. We love to say hi and we love to hear a little bit of your story. Um, we are a church that, I mean, honestly, for the whole year and really two years, because we've been on ground for a while, we've existed to join Jesus in, in redeeming this city. And, you know, what, the one thing we've tried to make clear, really two things, is that it's Jesus' mission. And the second thing is that it's his city uh, 2.6 million people live in this borough in which our church is planted. And, uh, and I'm grateful to, to play a small part, that our church gets to play a small part in what the Lord has been doing, not for decades, not for years, but for centuries. The Lord has been working here in Bed-Stuy. We are not some new phenomenon. We didn't plant a church here and bring Jesus to Brooklyn. He's been here. He's been working, you know, and... I was driving up Stuyvesant Avenue and I got to Stuyvesant in Jefferson and there's a church on the corner there. It's called Bridge Street, uh, Bridge Street Church literally has been there. Hear me. The oldest church in Brooklyn, New York has been there since 1766 and got incorporated in 1811. If you drive past the church right now, they are having service right now and have been in operation. So when we think about planting a church and we're like, yeah, we made one year, they've made 251 years. <laughs> and so what, what you really see playing out is that we're just playing a part, our small part in what the Lord is doing to redeem uh, this city. But I'm excited nevertheless. Listen, y'all, it's time for the word of God. And I'm excited about that. Uh, Deuteronomy 8.3 says that man cannot live by bread alone by every word that proceeds or comes out of the mouth of God. And today we have one of the greatest gospel communicators uh, of our life. Uh, I tell you, him and his wife, Paul, Dr. Paul Tripp and his wife, Luella, are dear, dear friends of me and Ty's. But not only that, beyond friendship, they are mentors for us. And last night we got to have dinner with them and they literally just poured out hours of information and wisdom on us, and, and we got to enjoy time with them. And I, you guys may know Dr. Tripp from his books and from his sermons and from his social media, 
Uh, but one thing I can promise you is that he is one of the godliest men I know. And he's really like the, one of the smartest people I know. Uh, you ever been around that one person that, you know, when they start to talk, you want to say less is possible in the conversation because you don't want to look dumb? You know, 50% of my time with Dr. Tripp, I'm shutting up like, Ugh. and then when I do say something, I'm like, that just probably sounded real, real dumb to him. Um, but I'm, I'm grateful for men like him. He, he really has taught me what it means to preach to live and to teach what it means to live under the gospel and live under grace and be faithful and consistent to that. So if you guys could do me a favor, everybody just point your hands his way so I can pray for him and then uh, we'll hear from him. Lord, we are eagerly anticipating your word today. Thank you for Dr. Tripp and for his ministry. And he could be speaking anywhere today, but he decided to come check on our little church plant. And we're grateful for him. And we confess, Lord, that we need you today. Thank you for one year anniversary. But the central theme of why we're here is to hear Jesus. And Lord, will the gospel be preached? Woe unto us if we don't preach the gospel. And Holy Spirit, would you breathe on him now, use him now, strengthen him now, and encourage him now, empower him now to proclaim the excellencies and the work of Jesus Christ. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Y'all give Dr. Tripp a Brooklyn welcome. I am privileged to be with you. I'm here because not only do I love the gospel, but I love the local church. When wherever I am in the country speaking, I try to fly back on Saturday night so Sunday morning I can be at Epiphany, Philadelphia. Epiphany, Philadelphia, you get the gospel up one side and down the other. You get it in the, the worship service. You get it at the welcome. You get it in the sermon. You just get gospel drenched. You just leave wet. <laughs> Uh, with the gospel, and we just, we just love that. Uh, listen, you need that gospel because there's not a grace graduate in this room. None. None, including this man. I need the gospel because there's not a moment in my life where I don't need to be rescued from me. And don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Now, here's the, here's the question of the morning I want you to think about. Between the already of your conversion, your coming to Christ, and the not yet of your home going, what is it that God gives you? What is it? If you had a pencil or piece of paper, you were going to pull out your iPad or your iPhone or whatever weird, sad off-brand you're carrying... <laughs> If it's a Samsung Note 7, leave the room quickly. Because you're about to burn us down. <laughs> how, would you, how would you answer that question? How, what, is, what does God give you in those moments where life makes no sense at all? What does it give you when you don't have enough money to pay your bills? When you face the betrayal of a friend. When it's the time to celebrate, but you're not sure what you should celebrate. When you're disappointed in yourself. You're in one of those moments where forget keeping God's law, you can't even keep your own law. Come on. 
What does God give you? If you're answering right now theology and rules, you've missed the whole point. Because hear this, I love the theology of Scripture. The theology of Scripture has taught me how to think. I love the guidance of God's commands. But check this out. If all you needed was a set of truths and a set of commands, Jesus would have never had to come. The whole move of the gospel is for all the glory and the good of those things, they do not reach down deep enough to rescue you from you. What is it that God gives us between the already of our conversion and the not yet of our home going? Well, here's the answer. And I want to take you to a passage that I think just gloriously details this. The answer is very simple. You can say it in a word, himself. He doesn't give you a thing. He doesn't give you a philosophy. He doesn't give you just a set of ideas. He doesn't just give you a whole bunch of rules. He gives you himself. We do not believe in a system of redemption. We believe in a redeemer. Every other philosophy, every other religion is a system. And the fault of every philosophy of man and every false religion is it offers you a system. It does not offer you a redeemer. And it gives you things to do and it gives you things to think, but it doesn't rescue you from you. Because in case you hadn't figured this out, Your biggest problem in life doesn't exist outside of you, exists inside of you. Because every word you say and every action you take is caused by what's inside of you, not what's outside of you. Now, you know this. You don't actually believe that. Because when somebody asks you, why in the world you do that? You don't say, well, I'm a sinner, of course. You should expect worse from me. (laughs) You have never said that in your life. You say, well, I wasn't feeling well. It's just my personality. I was very busy. I got a nasty boss. Right? If you knew who I was married to. If you knew what my mom and dad were like. If you ever met my dog. I mean, we got nothing less. We kicked the poor dog because we don't actually believe the gospel. And you see, to the degree that you devalue, to the degree that you deny sin, you will always devalue God's grace because you tell yourself all the time you don't need it. If you're able to convince yourself that your biggest problems are outside of you, not inside of you, check it out. You don't no longer need grace because grace is for people who say, I'm the biggest mess I'll ever meet. It's me. Listen, if you were on earth all by yourself, you would still need Jesus because you would just mess with you. And it'd be such a bummer because you'd have no one to blame unless you did this. 
you know, why'd you do that to me? I want you to turn to Romans 8. Uh, Romans 8, beginning with verse 18 through 39, has been characterized as a passage on suffering. And I get why it's been characterized that way, but what, what you actually have in Romans uh, 8, 18 through the end of the chapter, is the most glorious, detailed unpacking of the right here, right now grace of Jesus that's in the entire of, entirety of Scripture. Because here's what we, we tend to do. We tend to think of God's grace as an entrance and an exit. It gets me into relationship with God, and it guarantees me getting out of this world into the new heavens and the new earth. And then we revert to just a system of theology and rules in between. And Paul wants you to understand that your hope for your marriage your hope for your personal life, your hope for battles with sin, your hope in your finances, your hope in your marriage, your hope, your hope, your hope is found in the person's person and presence and grace of Jesus. That's it. And, and so he wants you to understand between the already and the not yet, your whole life is dependent on the operation of the grace of Jesus. Look there with me. I'm going to read. You can follow. I'm going to read the whole passage. And if this passage doesn't get you excited, you are comatose. <laughs> For I consider that sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation, creation waits eagerly, longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first for the spirit grown innerly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What should we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are guarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I just want to give you a, a bit of a warning label here. James Montgomery Boyce, who was a great Bible teacher, long-term pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, preached 48 messages on the passage I just read. So I hope you're not in a hurry (laughs) this morning. Uh, Look at verse 18, because I want to frame the context here. For I consider the sufferings of this, what it says next? Present. Present time are not worthy to be revealed, to be compared with the, that is to be, now you know the period of time he's talking about. He's talking about right now, till we're finally in that final glory with the Lord. That's the topic that he's addressing. And so I want to detail the grace that is yours. Here's the first thing. The grace that God offers you will often be, are you ready for this? Uncomfortable grace. For I consider the sufferings of this present time. What's interesting about that statement? The state, what's interesting about the statement that I just read is Paul assumes the universality of suffering. If you're not suffering now, you will someday. And if you're not suffering now, you're near someone who is. And he explains to us why. Because we live in a dramatically broken world. It's in bondage to decay. In bondage to futility. Like pains of childhood. Those are, those are provocative pictures of, of difficulty. Now here's what this means. When you go through difficulty, you should not conclude that God has forgotten you. When you go through difficulty, you should not conclude that God has favorites and is ignoring you. When you go through difficulty, you should not conclude that it's the failure of God's plan. Between the already and the not yet, God has ordained for you to live in a world that's dramatically broken. Nothing is working the way God intended for it to work. Now, check this out. That's his plan for you. Are you hearing me? He's not saying, oh no. I didn't think Paul and Luella would be in this situation. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? No, he knows. He knows exactly what your address is. He knows exactly where he's placed you. Listen, he has the sovereign power. If he wanted to, when you came to faith, you'd just disappear. You know, you'd be taken up. You'd leave holes in roofs. They would leak later. 
He can do that. But he has chosen for his purpose to leave you in a world where government is broken and relationships are broken and politics is broken and sexuality is broken and finances are broken. It's broken, broken, broken. Now either that plan is horrendously evil or it's gloriously good. And what is amazing about this passage that is one of the starkest descriptions of the brokenness of the world is it's coupled with words like this, hope, redemption, wait, patience. Now, what do those words predict to you? Those words describe to you that in the brokenness of the world, God is doing something good for us. All you need to understand how God can use bad things to do good things is the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the whole purpose of Peter's sermon in Acts 2. He says that Jesus was delivered to the cross by the hands of evil men. It was a horrendous evil. We must never say that that act of horrible injustice against a perfect man was okay. It was not okay. It was evil. And then he says this, mind-boggling, according to the foreordained plan of God, that God, it was God's intention to make the worst thing that ever happened the best thing that ever happened. What could be worse than the sacrifice of Jesus? What could be better than the sacrifice of Jesus? Your Lord is in the business of taking very bad things and producing very good things out of them. Now, here's what this means. It means God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. God will take you where you haven't chosen to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. You know what the Bible calls that? Grace. But it's not the grace of release. And it's not the grace of relief. Largely, that grace is to come. It's the grace of refinement because that's the grace we need right now. Well, you got to check this out. I hear people all the time saying when they're going through something unexpected, when the the unwanted, the unplanned, the unexpected uh, has entered the door, where is the grace of God? And they're getting it. They're getting it. That thing is grace. I mean, when you're going through difficulty, be honest, what do you pray for? You don't pray for more redemption. You never pray that once when you're going through difficulty. You just pray, get me out of here. And I'll sing worship songs to you. I, I, I call those vacuum cleaner prayers. You don't even need words. It's just, dear Jesus, in your name, amen. Just suck me out, drop me here. Dear Jesus, amen. Because we don't actually believe in uncomfortable grace. And so we say, if you love me, Lord. And on the other side of if you love me, Lord, is always some rendition of make my life easier. And... What you're getting 
is something better. It's not just temporary human happiness. It's eternal transformation of the heart. What a beautiful thing. So God's grace will come to you in uncomfortable forms. It's uncomfortable grace. God will take you where you haven't decided to go, haven't wanted to go, haven't planned to go, in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. That's why Paul, at the end of this paragraph, says, wait in patience, don't give up your hope. Your Redeemer is up to something good. Now look, it, always, it doesn't always seem good. I've been through just two very hard years of physical suffering, six surgeries in the last two years. On one hand, it doesn't make any sense at all that in the moment of my greatest ministry influence, I've been rendered weaker than I've ever been in my life. Wow. But I want you to hear this. This two years have without, without a doubt been the two most productive years of my entire ministry. And I finally had to realize that God doesn't need me to be healthy to use me. That's a human way of thinking. That's a human way of thinking. The Bible says his grace is sufficient. His strength is made perfect in your best moments. Is that what it says? When you're feeling so strong. It doesn't say that. Yes, listen, I will say this for myself. The reason I hate weakness is I still struggle to believe in grace. That's why weakness is so, weakness is so terrifying because we've lived in so much self-reliance. That's why weakness terrifies us. Well, that's the first part. That was about 12 of Dr. Boyce's sermons. <laughs> We're zooming. Not only is it uncomfortable grace, it's intervening grace. I love this next passage. I, well, I love the whole Bible. But there, there are some passages that just seem so tender and sweet and lovely. You just, they just become friends to you. And this is one of those. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Wow, wow, wow. There are moments when you and I don't have a clue what is going on. We don't know what God is doing. We, don't, we get to the point where we, we don't even know what to pray for. There are moments when the pain is so great, words don't come out of you. You groan. I can remember when one of my brothers was far away from the Lord. I, I walked by my mom's room one night, one afternoon. She was kneeling next to her bed, and all she was saying is, Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, oh, Lord. 
She was so brokenhearted. Words did come out. Listen, God doesn't require well-rehearsed theological prayers. He doesn't judge you on the doctrine of your prayer. In fact, this is a bit of a side. This is free. If in public, you're going to about to pray publicly, and you're rehearsing that prayer, you're not doing that for the glory of God. Because your Lord hears the rehearsal. He heard the beta rendition that you weren't able to say publicly. So you're saying, our dear Heavenly Father, that's not good enough. Our most holy, no, our sovereign, holy, glorious Heavenly Father, you're doing that for the person next to you. Because you want to be known as a theologue. I mean, listen, there are sometimes in prayer we're glory thieves. I mean, you could not think of an act. You could not think of an act that a human being does that seems more God-oriented and worshipful than prayer, right? And yet even in prayer... We're so full of ourselves and full of our glory that we will rob the glory of the Lord so the person next to us thinks something of us. I wish I could say I've never done that, but... I mean, sometimes... And I'm going to pray publicly. God just, he's getting a bit exhausted. He says, I've heard seven redditions of this prayer. Would he just pray, please? <laughs> now, why is it that you don't, you don't have to have cleaned up theologically accurate prayers? Because your righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus did everything he could possibly do to be acceptable to God so we don't have to be acceptable anymore. He measured up because I will never measure up. It's vain to think that you can ever measure up, that you can ever get it right. There are people who don't pray because they don't know what to pray. You know when you need to pray? You need to pray when you don't know what to pray. And you can be assured that your insane mumblings are carried with sane words by the Spirit to the Father. And the Father hears words. Words that make sense. The one who searches your heart pulls those words out of your heart that you couldn't carry and he takes those words in love to the Father. Wow. Wow. Listen. Don't ever not pray because you don't know what to pray. 
Don't ever not pray because you're too confused to pray. Don't ever not pray because you're too weak to pray. Don't ever not 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 pray. Because there's intervening grace. What does it mean? It means that Jesus meets you in that moment. He's with you in that moment. And he carries what you're not able to express to his father. Amen, amen, amen. Not only uncomfortable grace and intervening grace, but unstoppable grace. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom for new he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he for whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I have to say this. It's my job. Ephesians, or Romans 8, 28, is possibly the most misquoted, misused passage in the entire Bible. You know, somebody's going through something tough, and somebody... Pat you on the shoulders. Just, just remember, all things work together for good. As if that means that every hard circumstance you have in your life will be wrapped with a bow. Listen. There are crippled people who love Jesus who will never walk again. There are dear sweet believers who will die of cancer. There are Iraqi Christians who at this moment are being tortured for their faith. This is not a promise that because you're God's child, you have a ticket out of difficulty. It's not that promise. And I think that promise has set up dear sweet believers for doubt of the goodness of God. We need to stop it. Because if that's your expectation and that doesn't happen to you, the only thing you include is your God has been unfaithful to you. And here's how the enemy uses that. The minute you begin to conclude that God is not good, you quit going to him for help because you don't seek the help of someone you no longer trust. The enemy can't take away your salvation, but he can mess up the journey. You need to be careful. The way we interpret the word of God is very important. And you can't rip a passage out of its context and make it mean something that it doesn't mean. Now, what you learn from proper biblical hermeneutics, the proper interpretation of scripture, is that scripture interprets scripture. Right? If, if I say to you, I'm really angry at you, you need to be listening to everything before that and everything after that to understand what in the world it is I'm talking about. That's the way human language works. Now, f- 
for, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. What are the all things work together for good that he's talking about? Verse 29 and 30. Why would you stop as if Paul stopped? He didn't stop. This is a thought. Don't interrupt the man. Let him finish his thought. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the first among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Here's the good. The good that he's talking about is your redemption. Right. Nothing has the ability to stop the work of grace that has been initiated in your life. In fact, he's arguing this. Trusting God's grace is never risky. God's grace is never in question. It's never dumb to trust, to trust God's grace because here's what he's arguing. I want you to get this statement I'm about to make. The present grace that you're being given is just a present expression of a plan that was settled before the foundations of the earth. Do you hear what I said? This present grace is but a current expression of something that was settled, signed, sealed, delivered before the foundations of the world. It's now being dealt out to you. This, what is being dealt out to you now, was settled for you before you took your first breath. In fact, before anything took its first breath, because there was no world. It's settled. It's settled. It's settled. God's not figuring it out along the way. He's not making it up. He's not freestyling. Your Lord isn't a bad rapper. He's your redeemer. <laughs> He's just not making it up. I love this passage. Here's what it means. It means you are secure in him. And that's the good thing. You're secure in him. Your job isn't secure. Your relationships aren't secure. Your health isn't secure. We know government isn't secure. None of it's secure. Except this one thing. The mighty move of God's grace in your life. And listen. On your worst day, that grace is still moving. When you have ignored it for a week, that grace is still moving. When you are running in the other direction, that grace is still moving. Because it cannot be stopped. Because it was settled before you ever breathed the first breath. It's settled. It's settled. It's settled. It's settled. Go home. Get a card. Write two words on it. It's settled. And hook it to the mirror that you look at every morning. 
because you need to remember because nothing else in your life is settled and that's a very good thing isn't it wonderful that the most valuable thing a human being could ever want redemption is settled well not just uncomfortable grace and intervening grace and unstoppable grace but providing grace look where it goes next What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, embedded in those verses, I think, is one of the most striking, most beautiful and briefest definitions of grace. I'm going to give it to you. It's actually three words. I love these three words. It's three words that you could have never earned, you could have never achieved, you could have never deserved. It's three words that are the reason God harnessed the forces of nature and controlled the events of human history so that his son would come at, at, at some point and live the life we could not live and die the death that we should have died and, raise, and rise again conquering sin and death. Also, these three words would not just be your theology, but would be your reality. Get the difference? Not just an idea but your identity. Listen, good theology doesn't just teach you who God is. Good theology redefines who you are as a child of God. Here are the three words. I love this. They're so simple. God for us. That's what grace is. God for us. God has every righteous reason to be against us. He has every righteous reason to say you are rebels and I've had it. You have been enemies of my truth and my work. You resist me all the time. It's just amazing to me that Jesus just didn't say to his disciples, I've had it. You're the biggest group of losers ever. <laughs> I mean, there's that one moment where the disciples are in the boat and Christ has, has walked across the water. And he's, he's set up the whole thing to reveal his glory to the disciples. I mean, he's walking across the water. Don't try this at home. And, and he gets next to the boat. And rather than being blown away and rather than being a mo moment of worship, do you remember what the response is? They're terrified. Now, they, like they've learned nothing. They watched him calm another storm. They watched him feed a big multitude with a little boy's lunch. They watched him raise a little girl from the dead. She was dead, dead, dead. Clinically dead. You know, ear up to the nose, dead. She's dead. And they're utterly unprepared. It's just amazing to me, at that moment, Jesus doesn't say, get out of the boat, I'm choosing new disciples. Because you guys just don't get it. God for us. God for us. Grace is God for us. All that God is, he is now for you by grace. Think about that. All that God is, he
He is now for you by grace. All in his sovereignty, all in his wisdom, all in his power, all in his faithfulness, all in his mercy, all in his love, all in his grace, all that God is and the sum total of his majesty. He is now for us by grace. God for us. Now here's the logic of these verses. If God would go to the incredible extent he went to carefully manage the development of the created world and carefully manage the move of human history so that his son would come at a certain time and he willingly would sacrifice his own son for your redemption, would it make any sense that he would abandon you now along the way? The cross is your guarantee. If God would do this outrageous, unexpected thing, would he turn your back, his back on you in your moment of need? Paul argues that makes no sense whatsoever. The cross is your guarantee that God will deliver to you everything you need right here, right now, to be what you're supposed to be, and to do what you're supposed to do. Now, the promise is not that you get everything you want. Do you hear me? He never promised that you get everything you want. He never promised the realization of all your hopes and dreams. That's probably grace, too, because some of our hopes and dreams are just dumb. <laughs> and you... you you maybe some of you are old enough to be to know that sometimes when you get your dream, you think, why did I ever want that? I wish I could undream this dream. <laughs> Is there a grace of dream reversal, Lord? <laughs> because I'd like a little bit of that grace right now. You don't know. I love the argument in Matthew 6 where Jesus says, don't you know you have a heavenly father who knows what you need? Why are you worrying? That's Gentile stuff. People who, people who don't know God, who don't believe in God, and have loaded all of their welfare on their, their shoulders, well, I get why that person would worry. Because everything I need is up to me. But he says, don't you understand? You are now in the family of God. Your father is the king of kings and lord of lords. He created it all. He holds it all together. He owns it all. Your father knows what you need, and he will supply what you need. That's this passage. And if he would, if he would give us Jesus, who willingly came, and subjected himself to the ravages of life in a fallen world. Listen, don't think that Jesus' suffering began at the cross. His suffering began with his first breath. He had to suffer a limited human body. He had to suffer imperfect parents. An ignoble birth in a barn. Mocking and rejection. Bible says he was homeless. Birds of the air have nests, foxes have holes, the Son of Man didn't have a place to lay his head. 
He wasn't physically attractive. We know that from Isaiah. It says shockingly that people hid their faces from them. You know what it's like to be dissed that way when someone won't even look at you? They don't act like they don't even know you. That's Jesus. Subjected himself to cruel injustice. Allowed his body to be torn to shreds without ever exercising the power that he had to call down wrath on his accusers and his murderers. He allowed himself to be wrapped as a dead man. Put in his tomb, Jesus. You could argue that the life that is chronicled in the Gospels is a life of suffering that none of us would ever, ever, ever want to endure. If God was willing to subject his son to that, would it make any sense for him to abandon you now? Absolutely none. The cross is your guarantee. The life of Jesus is your guarantee. Uncomfortable grace, intervening grace, unstoppable grace, providing grace. Here's the last one, inseparable grace. Final argument, the final crescendo of this passage is that nothing, 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 nothing in heaven and earth, inside of you or outside of you, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord. Now, why does, why does Paul end there? Uh, when I read Romans 8, for me, I, at the beginning of the passage, I hear the timpani drums begin to roll because this is a celebration of grace. And as we get further in the passage, the drums are rolling louder as he's, he's just celebrating the nature of God's grace. And when you get to nothing can separate you from the love of God, now the cymbals are crashing and the drums are rolling. Why this? Why is this the crescendo? Well, because God knows something. He knows the human being that he has wired. What is it that every human being craves for? No matter what period of history they lived in, no matter where they exist on planet Earth, no matter what language they speak or what race they are or what ethnic group they represent, the one thing every human being longs for is this, to be loved. Will somebody love me? One of the reasons that it's hard for us to be honest with one another, you know why that is? Because I'm afraid If I'm honest with you, you won't love me anymore. Makes us hard to confess. You've had those thoughts. 
if I say this, what will they think of me? That's, that's the question. Will they love me? People will do incredibly dysfunctional things to just get somebody for a moment to whisper in their ear, I love you. And people long for somebody to say to them, I love you and I will never stop loving you. Deep in the heart of every human being is that quest. Now, there's a reason God created it there. God put that deep drive for love in us. He hardwired it in us. Why? Because that quest for love was meant to drive us to him. And all human love is meant to be a finger that just points us to the love we really long for, the love of God. It is really true what Augustine said. There's a hole in your heart that will only be filled by God and God alone. And this way, I have to say, I don't, I don't get the hope of atheism. I don't. Because uh, uh, like us, uh, an honest atheist will say, life is hard. You, you, you suffer a lot of things. Uh, because anybody who's honest will recognize that. And let me just say, biblical faith will never ask you to deny reality. Biblical faith will never, ever ask you to deny reality. If you have to deny reality to get a moment of peace, you may get a moment of peace, but you're not exercising biblical faith. That's why the Bible is shockingly honest and gloriously hopeful at the same time. And the honesty doesn't diminish the hope, and the hope doesn't negate the honesty. I don't get atheism because here's, here's, the, here's the narrative of atheism. I bump around this world. I face all kinds of disappointment. I, I suffer physically, and I die, and it goes black. What? That's attractive. <laughs> At the end of all this suffering, what I get? Nothing. How about this? Because of the gift of the grace of Jesus Christ, I suffer. I suffer in many ways in my life. If you have any person who's, who's, who's at the edge of, of going to the other side, they will look back and they will tell you all the ways that they face disappointment and suffering. I suffer all of that, but then I die. And I get loved perfectly forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and 10 million years into eternity, the arms of Jesus are still wrapped around me. I get what I've longed for my entire life, love that will never be taken away. No wonder that's the crescendo of this passage. Because deep in the heart of every human being is a desire to be loved. Uncomfortable grace, intervening grace, Unstoppable grace, providing grace, inseparable grace. What does the grace of God give you right here, right now? Something so glorious 
and so beautiful and so form fit for what you need that you will spend the rest of eternity unpacking it. It's called grace. God gives you himself. He is in you and for you and with you. And with him comes uncomfortable, intervening, unstoppable, providing inseparable grace. Now, I think it's right to celebrate this anniversary. I think it's right that we should build memorials to what God has done. But what we've talked about is what you'll actually celebrate in eternity. Because you will finally realize every good thing you ever experienced or accomplished was a result of God's grace. And you will sing that hymn forever. Let's pray. Lord, how how blown away we are by this passage of Scripture. It would be right for us right now to say that we love you, but we want to say our greatest, fullest, deepest joy in life is that we've been loved by you. You are a rock and a fortress. You are a sun and a shield. You are life and health and peace and truth and forgiveness and reconciliation and hope. You are king. You are lamb. You are savior. Thank you that you have placed your love on us and poured your grace down on us. May we celebrate that good thing now and forever. Amen. 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 Can we thank God for the word of God?